Please turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. <clears throat> Continuing our study through the book of Esther this morning, we're looking at chapter 5, the whole chapter. Please give your attention to the Word of God. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath towards Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. We have seen in our study through the book of Esther that faith in God means believing that he is sovereign, that he's in control of all things, and all things happen according to his eternal decree. And that we trust his good and perfect plan. And all of history is the outworking of his plan in our midst. In the movie Field of Dreams, there's a farmer named Ray. Who as he's working out in the fields one day, hears a voice. And the voice says to him, if you build it, he will come. So Ray, after a while, finally gets around to building a baseball field in the midst of his cornfield. 
After the field is done, nothing happens. And so a little bit later, he again is out working in the field and he hears the voice again, the same voice saying to him, ease his pain. He's puzzled by what the voice has said to him. That's all the voice says. And so he goes into the farmhouse kitchen and says to his wife, I've heard the voice again and it's telling me to ease his pain. And his wife, of course, says, ease whose pain? And he says, I don't know, he won't tell me. And his wife responds, this is a very nonspecific voice that you've got out there. And he's really starting to tick me off. Have you ever felt that way about God's word? How nonspecific it is? You have a sense that God has you here for a purpose. And yet, when you go to his word for direction, it's so nonspecific. That's one of the beautiful things about God's word is how it applies to every age, to every person, in every place. But yet, when it comes to making specific decisions and taking specific actions, God's word is nonspecific. How many of us have looked to God in prayer and said, Lord, I, I, I want to do your will. Just write it in the sky for me. Tell me what you want me to do in this situation. God's word is very nonspecific, especially about the future. We're told to trust him, to believe that he is sovereign, that he has a plan, and his plan is for our good and for his glory. But very little in the way of specifics. That's the way he intends it. Matter of fact, Moses says in Exodus chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may, all, may, may do all the words of this law. There are many things that God has not revealed to us. In his wisdom, he has revealed to us what we need to know about the past, about the present, and about the future. And we need to trust in what he's revealed and not always be seeking more divine revelation about what we are to do, how we are to act. We're to apply the principles of what he's revealed in his word. That's why it's sinful to seek out mediums, psychics, fortune tellers, astrologers. Because the only reason for doing that is to try to dive into things that God has not revealed about our future and not trust him for what he has revealed. To go to a fortune teller to find something about the future is saying, Lord, you have not given me enough revelation for my life today. That's why it's sinful. In chapter 4, we saw Esther wrestling with God's will for her life. Esther having to make a very important decision that would put her own life at risk. And she accepts in chapter 4 her cousin and her adoptive father Mordecai's interpretation, his suggestion of how God may be working in her life to put her in a position to do something great for the people of God. That in spite of all the sordid and twisted paths that have led her to this position of power as the queen of Persia, 
that somehow he's asking Esther to believe God in his plan has put her there so that she might intervene for the sake of the saving of God's people. Because Haman, the second in power in the Persian Empire, who hated the Jews, has manipulated the king to make a decree which was irrevocable that the Jews be annihilated. But how was she to do this? I could easily imagine Esther praying and saying, God, write it in the sky. Tell me what to say, when to say it, how to say it. But first, there was the issue of getting an opportunity to make the request. Not only did the law of Persia say that anyone who came into the king of Persia's presence without being invited be put to death, and that was a law that anybody who came without being invited be put to death. So she had to get somehow past that huge obstacle. But even then, if she got into the king's presence, the chances, humanly speaking, that he would accede to her request were almost nil. Very slim chance that he would give in to her request. So Esther could be saying, Lord, how? Tell me what you want me to do. The passage here that we're going to study in chapter 5 is instructive to us to how, what it means to live by faith, believing that God has a plan, believing that God is in control, and believing that in God's plan, we have a role to play in our own day, in our own generation, in our own circumstances, but not knowing the specifics of what God wants us to do. And we're going to see here a contrast between two people. One person who represents a person of faith, represents people of faith, and the other person who represents the people of the world, the people who don't know God. Well, let's look first at what it means to live by faith in what God has revealed. The first thing that Esther teaches us is actually a lesson that she began to teach back at the end of chapter four. Remember, we left off at the end. She said, okay, I will do it. I will go to the king. At the risk of my own life, I will go to the king. But remember what the first thing she did was. She said, Mordecai, I'm going to spend three days. My servants and I are going to fast, and a total fast of both food and, and drink. We're going to fast for three days and seek the Lord's face. I'm asking you, Mordecai, to do the same, and I want you to ask all the Jews in the city of Susa to do the same as well. Pray for me that I might have wisdom. She gives us an example here of what Proverbs teaches us about how to step out in faith into the unknown, the unrevealed. And the message of Scripture consistently from beginning to end is seek the Lord first. Seek the Lord first before you take your step of faith. Proverbs 16 verse 3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. James chapter 1, verse 5, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's actually a very remarkable promise that is unique in Scripture. You're not going to find anywhere in Scripture that if you ask for a new car, that God's going to guarantee you're going to get it. You're not going to find anywhere it says, pray for a new job and you'll get it. 
Or pray for a wife and you'll, and you'll get it. There's no way. There's nothing in scripture that promises we get specific answers to prayers like that. But there's one place where it guarantees that God will answer your prayer. Is if you genuinely in faith ask him for wisdom. And he says he will grant it. And he'll grant it generously. God is looking for you to look to him for wisdom. That's what he wants from you in those times of uncertainty about what to do in your life, what decision to make, what action to take. Ask him. Get on your knees. Seek his face. Ask for this wisdom that he promises to give. That doesn't mean that he's gonna, you're going to walk outside and he's going to have it written in five steps in the sky. That's not how he's going to answer your prayer. What he's going to do is give you the Holy Spirit so that you can go to his word and take the principles of his word and apply it to your circumstances. You are not alone in your attempts to understand and apply what God has revealed in his word. He has given you his spirit. And if you ask for wisdom, the spirit will guide you and give you wisdom to interpret it and apply it to your situation. Esther not only needs wisdom to know what to do and when to do it and how to say it, but she also needs courage. She needs a stronger faith. And so she prays. And prepares herself before she acts. Nehemiah lived just a little bit later in history. Just, just a little bit later in history. It's interesting. We said that King Ahasuerus, who was Queen Esther's husband, he, his Greek name was Xerxes. Xerxes' son was Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the king of Persia after Xerxes, after Ahasuerus. And Artaxerxes was the king who had Nehemiah, the Jew, as his cupbearer. Artaxerxes was the son of Xerxes and probably the stepson of Esther, which is an interesting bringing together historically where we're at in scripture. So Esther's stepson is on the throne and Nehemiah has become his cupbearer. And so there again, God in his wise plan and providence has put a faithful Jew in the presence of the most powerful man in, in, on the planet. And Nehemiah hears a report that the Jews who had gone back to Jerusalem to build, rebuild the city, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, that the, the walls were still in disrepair, the temple was not rebuilt, and they were being hassled and attacked by their enemies. They were totally vulnerable. And here's Nehemiah with, with the kingdom of God is his central concern in life. And he's praying and he's wrestling and he's grieving over the state of the people of God, the exiles who had gone back. And so in the presence of the king, he's grieving. And the king says, what are you so sad about, Nehemiah? What, what's, what's wrong? And I love what the text says. Nehemiah is giving the account here. And Nehemiah says, and so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I answered the king. And what an example to us. Here's his moment. The king, he wants to ask the king to, to be able to go back and to be given the supplies to rebuild the city, particularly the walls around Jerusalem. And he prays before he even gives a response. You can imagine Artaxerxes saying, you know, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. You're not responding. He's praying so that he might have wisdom to say it the right way, the right time, and get the right response. That's what Esther's doing before she goes to the king. It does beg the question, because we've been talking about God's sovereignty over history and how all things happen according to his plan. Why pray? If God is sovereign, 
and everything happens according to his plan, what role do our prayers play? And we talked about that mystery last time, about the mystery between us making free, open choices according to our own desires and will, and we're, account we're accountable and responsible for all the choices that we make, and yet God is somehow sovereign over all that, and all the choices and actions that we take are somehow incorporated into his plan that was set in place before the foundation of the world. That's a mystery that we can't understand. But how do our prayers play into that? I mean, I don't want my prayers to change God's will. I don't want my prayers to change God's plan. God's plan is perfect. And I don't want him coming to little old me in my limited sinful perspective and ask me for advice on how his plan should be changed. I don't want things to operate that way. But what role do my, do my prayers play? And I can't answer that mystery for you. Theologians have wrestled with that question for centuries upon centuries. I can't answer it for you, just like I can't answer the sovereignty and responsibility issue. But one of my professors in seminary gave me a sentence in one of his classes that I want to share with you because ever since then, I've, I've remembered it often, and it's encouraging to me and helpful to me. I hope it is for you as well. This is what he said in relation to how our prayers fit into the overall plan of God. He said, God never sets about to do anything in this world without first moving his people to pray for it to happen. God never sets about to do anything in the world without first moving his people to pray that it would happen. Now that doesn't solve the problem logically for our little brains. But what it does is it shows that God has a purpose for our prayer. God could save all the lost people that he intends to save and accomplish the plan of redemption without involving us at all. But he chooses to use us. He chooses to use our witness. And he chooses to use our prayers to accomplish his will. And so it's important that we be praying, that we be part of what God is doing in this world. And so Esther, before she goes to the king, she understands that for God to get the glory, she needs to be seeking his wisdom, his courage, to be able to do what he has asked her to do. I've often said to people, do not make any important decision or take any important action in life if you have not drawn near to God to seek his face first. Some of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is because they were not in a place in life where they were close to the Lord when they had to make a big decision. And they made their decision based on the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the flesh, and God was not involved in the decision. Don't ever make an important decision if you've not first drawn near to God. That's what Esther did. That's her example to us in this passage. Secondly, she looked for God's hand at work in her circumstances. We've said that God is behind everything that happens. Even though he's not named in the book of Esther, he's behind everything, orchestrating every detail, every event to accomplish his purposes and to accomplish his plan. And so Esther, having prayed, sought the wisdom of the Lord, then she has to interpret what is God doing? How is his hand moving in my circumstances among the people that I'm interacting with? Particularly, how is he moving in the life of the king? The one who has all the power, earthly speaking, to make this decision. And so Esther, 
it's just interesting to try to understand what she does in these next few verses. She puts on her royal robes, which I think is meant to contrast the sexy robes she put on when she tried to win the contest to be the queen. Now she comes in her, her robes of authority and she comes to the doorway of the throne room. She doesn't walk into the throne room, but she comes to the doorway. It says that she's in the hallway outside the room where the king is seated on the throne. And so there she is standing in the doorway and this is the moment of truth. At that point, the king had every right by law and should by law call in the guards to have her taken away and executed for coming into his presence uninvited. But instead, he reaches out his scepter. He reaches out his golden scepter, which was a sign that he was going to pardon her for her offense of coming uninvited. And she comes and she touches and receives his grace. And so there's the moment. She's been given the opportunity to make a request. But again, let me stress that humanly speaking, there was very slim chance that the king would go along with what she wanted. She wanted to ask for the king to somehow intervene in this irrevocable law, this decree that he has made that has said that all the Jews would be annihilated. For him to go back on that, just think of the cost to King Ahasuerus. He would have, first of all, he would have to revoke an irrevocable decree. And just think about the precedent that that would set. That he would actually revoke an irrevocable decree. There'd be fallout to that politically for him from that time on. Secondly, he would deny and disgrace his second in command, Haman, who had come up with the scheme, come up with the plot. Thirdly, he would be giving up the 10,000 talents of silver that Haman promised to put in the king's treasury, the payment, the bribe, which was a huge sum of money. He would be giving that up in order to revoke the decree. And then finally, just the loss of face in front of his officials, in front of the whole populace for revoking the decree. But what's interesting is, listen to how he responds to Esther's presence and the implied request in her presence. She, he knows that she would not have risked her life unless she had something really important to her to ask. He sounds really generous here. He says in verse three, what is your request? It shall be given you e up, even up to half my kingdom. Like, wow, half the kingdom. All I want is the Jews to be saved and you're offering me half the kingdom. Well, don't take him seriously. One of the commentators said, this is typical ancient Near Eastern hyperbole. <laughs> That's just how kings talked back then. They wanted to make themselves sound generous. And so they would always say, they didn't really mean it. And she, if she had asked for half the kingdom, we'd say, are you kidding? No way. But, you know, it was hyperbole. She didn't mean it. That, that was the way they talked. Remember uh, Herod, when Herodias came in and danced for Herod, he offered her half his kingdom. He didn't mean it. All she wanted was the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so he was willing to do that, but he wasn't ever going to give her half the kingdom. Well, at this point, Esther was probably tempted to ask for Haman's head on a platter, but instead, you would think this would be her opportunity. He's speaking of his generosity, his desire to please me. This is the time. And say, no, sire, I don't want half your kingdom. I just want the lives of the Jews to be spared. But instead, she asked the king and Haman to dinner. What a letdown at a moment of high drama and tension. 
But what a surprise. This story is full of surprises, left and right. She asked the king and Haman to come to dinner. They're like, what are you doing, Esther? Well, then they come to her dinner, and they have a nice full meal. She's prepared this great meal, this banquet for them, and their stomachs are full. They're sitting on couches after dinner. They're sipping wine and probably feeling pretty good. And, you know, now you're thinking, Esther, you've got the king right where you want him. This is the moment. Ask. And so then she starts to ask, and she builds up with this big request. You see how she, she words it. She, she, she like she's ready to kind of just hit him with the request, and all of a sudden she says, come to dinner tomorrow. And you're like, Esther, what are you doing? Well, I don't know what she's doing. You don't know what she's doing. Once again, the, the storyteller here refuses to give us motivation and thought behind people's actions. We don't know why Esther asked, when she's given the first opportunity, she asked him to dinner, and when she's given the second opportunity, she asked him to another dinner. We can only speculate. It's possible that she just lost her nerve. And that's very possible in light of what was at stake. Here's her moment, and she chickened out and didn't ask him. That's possible, but I don't think so. I think more what's happening here is this is a child of God seeking wisdom about the circumstances and the things that she feels that God wants her to do, and she's trying to be wise. She's trying to pick the right moment to make the request, and she doesn't feel that she's found it yet. And so, yes, she's delaying, but notice that as she delays, she is moving the king slightly more to act in her favor. She says, if you are inclined to give me my request, come back to dinner tomorrow. So by coming to dinner tomorrow, he almost implies that he's inclined to give her what she's going to ask. All this is is illustrating for us what it means to act in wisdom, to try to discern what God is doing in your circumstances based upon the principles that he has revealed in his word Trusting in God's plan without knowing the details means often waiting on the Lord. Recognizing that for you to have success in whatever God is asking you to do, you need the Lord to prepare people and circumstances for you to do what he's asked you to do. And particularly, he needs to work in the hearts of others. There's a great verse. This will change your political philosophy if you really understand. Make this one of your foundational verses for how you view world politics and national politics. Listen to what it says. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he pleases. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it wherever he pleases. Now recognize that 99 and 9 tenths percent of the kings and dictators and potentates that have ever lived on the face of the planet didn't know the Lord, and they weren't trying to do the will of the Lord. But yet, God, in his sovereignty, directs kings to do as he pleases to fit his plan. That's what's happening. That'll give you a lot more peace and contentment when you read the morning newspaper, when you watch cable news, to know that none of these powerful people in the world no matter what purpose and what motivation, no matter what their goals are, no matter how evil they are, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it wherever he pleases. Esther knew that it was her mission was only going to be successful if the Lord went ahead of her and prepared the king to respond the right way. She's waiting on the Lord. 
I don't know what mission, what calling you have. Everybody has a different calling in life. Everybody in the room has a different calling. But we all have one mission for sure, which is to preach Christ, to tell others about Christ, to be his witnesses, to make disciples. And Esther teaches us a lot right here that we aren't given the specifics. We're not given the specifics. We're given a message, but how do we say it? What words do we use? What does this person need to hear? Is this person going to be receptive to what I have to share with them? We're totally dependent on the Lord for that. The Lord has to work in the heart of the person for them to receive the message that we want to share with them. And we need to pray first and then use wisdom that the Holy Spirit will give us to apply what his word teaches us to this situation, to this person, and believe that the Lord is working to prepare that person to receive it. And so that's where we leave off Esther's story at this point. She's making dinners and she's waiting and praying and seeking to discern the right time and the right words to make her request. The story then shifts to Haman. And he, to us, is an example of the man of the world. The man who has made it in the world. The man who has everything in the world. And what that man lives for and the foolishness of his life from the perspective of God. There's only two kinds of people in the world. All different varieties of people, but there's only really two kinds of people in the world. First category of people are those who live for God's plan and God's glory. The other category of people are those who live for their own plans and their own glory. Those who live for God's plans and God, God's plan and God's glory are those who live for their own plans and their own glory. Haman is of the second type. He's walking on clouds as he walks out of that banquet. He's arrived. He is the second most powerful person on the planet to King Ahasuerus. He's wealthy beyond description. And the queen and the king obviously love him because not only have they invited him and him alone to one banquet, they've invited him to two banquets back to back. But as he's floating on clouds, walking out of the throne room or out of the banquet room, he walks through the king's gate, which was the government building that was by the, the, the entrance and the exit to the palace grounds. As he walks through the king's gate, there's Mordecai again. And once again, while everybody else gives their bowing and their signs and genuflections of, of respect and honor to Haman as they were supposed to do, Mordecai stands there with his arms crossed, defiantly refusing to show honor to Haman, and it gets under his skin immediately. He hates this guy. He hates him because he's a Jew, and he hates him because he will not acknowledge his superiority. And he's furious about it, but he restrains himself. Instead of lashing out at Mordecai, he goes home, and he complains to his wife and his friends. He has a party, he gets his friends all together, and interestingly, he starts by boasting for who knows how long. He just tells all his friends, all again, they, I'm sure they'd heard it many times, how much money he had, how great his sons were, how much power, how many promotions he's had in the king's uh, authority structure, the power and influence that he has, the status that he has. He boasts, and he says at the end, you know, all this is worth nothing to me because that Mordecai just, it just sticks in my craw. I'm so mad at him. He's ruining it all for me. And what, you know, again, this is a picture of foolishness. This is the way the world lives. This is the way of the world. And the scriptures are showing us how foolish it is. Here's a guy who's trying to say that he's the most important, most powerful, 
most wealthy person in the world, but he's totally dependent on the people around him admiring him. And that's what pride is almost all the time. People that are prideful, it's because they're insecure. People that tell you all the time how great they are, it's because they're insecure. Because their drug of choice is the admiration of others. And so others really have power over them. They're enslaved to the admiration of others. And that's what you see here in Haman. An empty man who has been given all these earthly benefits and rewards, but he can't enjoy them because not everybody is bowing to him and honoring him. Well, Haman's wife and his friends show themselves to be sycophants. They, they feed his pride for their own benefit. And they encourage his hatred and his vindictiveness towards Mordecai. And they come up with a solution. They say, you know, why are you waiting 11 months to have Haman put to death with all the other Jews? Why don't you, you know, if the king and the queen love you so much, if they think so highly of you, why don't you just go to the king and ask to have him put up on the gallows? Tonight, tomorrow morning, before you even have to go to this banquet, so you can just be done with Mordecai and forget him. Then you'll be happy. And then you can go enjoy your feast with the king and the queen. Interesting, the word gallows there, if you'll notice in some of your footnotes, it's actually a stake. It's actually a, the, the, the word there in Hebrew is just for a stake. And, you know, that's because we think of a gallows as, as a structure with a rope and the person hanging from the rope. Uh, in Persian, the historians tell us that in the Persian Empire, they didn't do, they didn't put people to death that way. They actually just impaled them on a stake. And so they want this stake to be 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet. That's how much Haman hated Mordecai. Didn't want, just want him put to death. Didn't just want him impaled. Wanted him put on a stake that's 75 feet high so that the entire territory could see him above the city. That he might receive the ultimate in humiliation. It reminds me, I had a chance this week to, to see a movie I hadn't seen for a long time. Uh, called Changing Lanes. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a, kind of an obscure movie. Ben Affleck's in it. Uh, Samuel. Samuel, what's his face? Yeah, that guy. Um, but the, the movie is about, the, the movie starts with this lawyer on his way to an important court date and this poor man, as a lawyer, and a poor man headed to another court date to try to keep his family together. And they have an, a car accident on the freeway in the middle of the city. And the rest of the movie is just playing out from that point what happened the rest of that day. Over and over again, both of these men are given an opportunity to show grace and mercy toward the other person who has caused them to miss their court date and disrupt their lives. Both men repeatedly have an opportunity to show grace and mercy, but instead, both men repeatedly are vindictive and retaliate. And you just watch their lives spiral out of control as the whole day progresses. And by the end of the day, they're sadly sitting across from each other, looking at each other, having destroyed each other's lives. And that's the way of the world. That's the way of Haman. That's where it all leads. If it's all about accomplishing your plans and everything you do serves your glory, Everybody who would take away from that is in the way and needs to be eliminated or at least pushed out of the way. And that's why the way of the world ends. That's the way pride ends with destruction. And that's the message of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 24. The discerning sets his face towards wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. That's the choices we face every day. Are we going to live for pride and self-glory in our own plans? Are we going to live for God's plan and God's glory? Are we going to 
live vindictively, retaliatory lives? Or are we gonna live lives of grace and forgiveness? Are we gonna live for ourselves, or are we gonna live for others? You see, the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapters one and two are all about the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And one of the key ways to understand life is that the world is always gonna look at the wisdom of God as foolishness and God is always gonna look at the wisdom of this world as foolishness. And the foolishness of God that the world despises is that God sent his only son to be the means by which we come into his presence. He offered to us not a golden scepter for us to come and touch, but he offered to us his son who died on a wooden cross while we were still his enemies and bore the wrath and the punishment that our sins deserved so that we would be forgiven, so that we would be seen as righteous in his presence. And therefore, as we come robed, not in just royal robes, but robes of righteousness into the very presence of God to be accepted because of what Christ did for us. That's what the world calls foolish, but that's what God's plan calls the very wisdom of God and the power of God, according to 1 Corinthians. That is how we are freed from this destructive cycle of pride and vindictiveness to love God and to serve others. It's the gospel that does it. See, the world has no means for forgiveness. The world will talk about forgiveness. They'll try to practice forgiveness sometimes, but there is no basis forgiveness in their worldview. There's no basis for forgiveness in their religions. There's no basis for forgiveness. Only the gospel gives us a basis forgiveness of others, to show grace to others. Well, we end chapter five with another cliffhanger. Will Esther make her request? Will she live? Will the king respond favorably? Will the Jews be saved? Come back next week. <laughs> but at this point, at the end of chapter five, all we know is that God is doing a work of grace in Esther. Esther is becoming a changed woman. She's no victim anymore. She's no passive Beautiful woman getting by on her looks and enjoying all the comforts of the Persian palace. She's a child of God who has chosen to identify herself with God and with his people, and she's gonna lay her life on the line. She's gonna sacrifice her life, if that's what it takes, to do the will of God and to accomplish his purposes. She's growing in faith and wisdom. She's being transformed by the renewing of her mind, and we praise God for that. And that same spirit is available to us. I want to close with a song, uh, a folk song that I know for, it was done in the early 70s. God did an amazing thing, kind of a weird revival. Talk about a strange story. You know, this hippie movement was all about drug, sex, and rock and roll and just living free and throwing off all, all restraints on behavior and just living according to all your lusts and pleasures. That's what the hippie movement was about, but some of the hippies, God intervened, and, and some of the hippies saw the, the emptiness and the destruction of that lifestyle, and God brought about a revival. They called it the Jesus People Movement, and it wasn't always pretty, and it wasn't always orthodox, but God did an amazing thing, and there were some amazing songs that came out of that revival that happened in the early 70s, and there's this one folk song, and I'll just never forget the lyrics. The singer, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you've never heard of her, but the lyrics have stuck with me for all these decades. And this is what it says. The song's called Where I'm Going. This is what the lyrics say. 
I know not what my future holds, and I have no way of knowing, but I know the one who holds my future, and I have no fear of where I'm going. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we continue to learn about the way you work in the lives of your people through the book of Esther, I pray that you'd continue to give us wisdom as we seek to apply the principles that play out in this story in our own lives, in our own very different circumstances. None of us are queens. None of us live under the power of dictators. None of us live in palaces and have every material need met. But Lord, we are still your servants. We are your people, and we are on the same mission to bring the truth of the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us courage. And in the process, continue to change us that we might become greater in faith and closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.